1: But I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern right. Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Welcome Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt 39. Jr. Kirk Cur- Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. It is Monday, Sweet. October 11th, yeah. 2021, oh, we Hope everybody had a great weekend. And I know you did. Because we got an iconic instant classic weekend in college football. There is so much for us to talk about today. We will obviously open with the all timer Bama losing to texas a&m in college station just a stunning result what happened what went wrong is this fixable for bama i don't know if it is and oh by the way why are there no great teams in college football this year outside of maybe georgia i think i have some answers that will be interesting to you we will obviously talk about speaking of iconic oklahoma texas unbelievable finish there we might have ourselves a quarterback controversy in norman we'll wrap with the big 10 Penn State loses to Iowa. Who's the best team in that conference? Maybe talk a little LSU-Kentucky, on and on and on and on and on. But on a day like today, there is no more time to waste. Let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, we know where it comes from. College Station, Texas, Kyle Field, Texas A&M, Alabama. And before we get into what happened, what went wrong, what went right, let me say this. If you listen to Friday's show, you know that... I didn't really talk much about Alabama A&M. I talked a ton about Iowa-Penn State, Texas-Oklahoma, Georgia-Auburn, but Alabama A&M was the one game that I really did not talk all that much about, and it's because it's really pretty simple. I didn't see any scenario in which Texas A&M beat Alabama in this game. And the reason I didn't see that is because the rules of college football do not apply to Alabama, okay? When we start breaking down games and talking about games, We talk about how the crowd could impact a game. We talk about uh, late night, uh, night games, CB, all these factors that go into this. But none of them really apply to Alabama. In the Nick Saban era, there are really only two scenarios in which Alabama loses games. One, they simply run into a team that has as much, if not more, talent than them. Uh, Happened a few years ago with LSU. It's happened with Clemson in the playoff. It's happened with Ohio State in the playoff. I don't think the gap between AM and and Alabama is huge, but I would say Alabama right now has more talent as Jimbo Fisher starts to accumulate talent through recruiting. The second way that Alabama loses games is if they just run into an iconic all-time quarterback. You think about the quarterbacks that have beaten Alabama, especially the ones that don't have great teams around them. Cam Newton, uh, Johnny Manziel, And then the other ones that do, usually that have great, even the great teams that have talent around them, they usually run into an iconic quarterback, Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, Joe Burrow, whatever. So if you don't have more talent than Alabama or equivalent talent, or you don't have an iconic difference-making quarterback, you are not winning that game. And so that is why I did not see this game going down the way that it did. And so credit Jimbo Fisher, credit a and for the 41-38 win. And I know I talk about it all the time, but what was so impressive about this game, there was nothing fluky about it. Well, there was. We're going to get into it. But a and was the better team. They were the deserving team. And so I want to start by giving a and credit. Proved me wrong. Proved the doubters wrong. Proved the haters wrong. Proved Aaron Torres, the Aaron Torres podcast wrong. Because I said a and had no chance and I was completely wrong. I do think, though, we need to start from the Alabama perspective and what I would say from Alabama's perspective, just about everything that could go wrong did. First of all, Zach Calzada, A&M's quarterback, I've been very critical of him. Clearly, he's listening to the Aaron Torres podcast because he had the game of his life. 295 yards passing, 285 yards passing, excuse me, nine and a half yards per completion, three touchdown passes, okay? And for people who do not follow Texas A&M on a week-to-week basis, What I would tell you is, there was no reason to see this coming. No disrespect to Zach Calzada, I'm sure he's a great human being, but here are his previous two stat lines coming into this game. 151 yards passing, 20 of 36 passing, 0 touchdowns, 1 interception against Arkansas, 12 of 20 passing, 135 yards, 1 touchdown, 1 interception against Mississippi State. And so think about what I just told you for a second. In the last two games, Zach Calzada has thrown for 286 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions. Against Alabama, he threw for 285 yards, three touchdowns, one interception. On top of that, everything else, again, that could go wrong did. Bryce Young, I don't believe, had his best game, 28 of 48 passing. By no means am I blaming him. But not his best game. Certainly not the offensive line's best game as Bryce Young was sacked five times in this game. Or four times, excuse me, plus five tackles for loss overall. Was not, I would add, Nick Saban's best game as he held on to some timeouts late in the first half which could have netted them points which ultimately could have helped them. But sometimes in life, in in sports, sometimes it's just not your night. I was on Fox Sports Radio with my buddy Jason Martin during this game Saturday night And what stood out to me was this. I've been watching sports a long time, and sometimes you just know when it is not your team's night. Now, Alabama is by no means my team, but I knew it wasn't Alabama's night when this happened. Going into halftime, they trail 24 to 10. Coming out, they get a stop. They not only get a stop, they block a punt recover the punt for a score, and cut the lead to 24-17. They have all the momentum, the energy is out of Kyle Field, and all of a sudden you're like, okay, we've seen this script before, Alabama's going to make their run, they're going to be fine, they're going to win this game going away. What happens next? a returns the following kick for a touchdown, all of a sudden they are back up two scores, and while uh, Alabama continued to fight, they still ended up losing that game on the last second field goal. And so now looking forward, what's interesting is this. So Alabama loses, what does it mean going forward? First of all, in the small picture, let's just be abundantly clear. Alabama still has everything to play for. Alabama, despite the loss, uh, they are still in first place in the SEC West. Uh, They are two and one in the SEC West. Ole Miss and Auburn, Ole Miss, Auburn, and Mississippi State all have one loss each. They obviously have the tiebreaker over Ole Miss. And let's be honest, I don't think Auburn or Mississippi State is beating Alabama And we've seen this before with Nick Saban. It's not as though they've never lost early in the season, rallied, come back, made a playoff, won the SEC, won a national championship. It's happened before. It can happen again this year. What I would also say is I'm starting to get a little worried about this Bama team. First of all, I don't believe some of the narratives that came out of that game. I don't believe it was the best game for their offensive line. I don't believe it was the best game for the defensive line. But I don't believe that they got dominated in the trenches like some are saying either. They finished with over 150 yards rushing, four and a half yards per carry, and under four yards per carry for A&M, under 100 yards rushing. So in many ways, they actually played pretty well up front. Instead, what the problem is, and what we have to agree on with Alabama is this. We are now six games into the season. Alabama has not really been that dominant for most of the season. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this in the lead up to the show. I think you can legitimately argue Alabama's Best half of football this entire year was against the University of Miami to open the season. Two great quarters, take this big lead, and even after the game, they kind of took their foot off the gas. They end up beating Miami. One, Miami's not very good, but two, what happened that week? Nick Saban started yelling and screaming to the press saying, you guys are overrating him because he knew this was coming. Well, what's happened since then? Well, we got ourselves a six-game sample size now, and this is what I know. They take care of a Miami team that's not good in week one, okay? They play a couple cupcakes, whatever, blah, 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 blah. This is what they've done in SEC play. They played Florida two weeks ago. Final score in that one, we know what it was. It was 31-29 to in the swamp, and you can say they went on the road, tough road environment, give them credit. We should. At the same time, as I talked about on this show following that game, after the first quarter of that game, they were largely dominated by Florida the rest of the game. They take a 21-3 lead after the first quarter against Florida. They are outscored 26 to 10 from there and basically hold on for dear life. Then there is last week against Ole Miss. And I know that everybody, including me, and I blame myself for buying into the narrative, told you how incredible that win was. But now that we have a little time to think about that Ole Miss win, was it really that incredible? Or did Lane Kiffin just coach them out of the game? Because when I look back at that game now, I feel a lot differently. And I said following the game, the one thing I do give myself credit for. I heard all these media members all week long talk about Lane Kiffin going for it on fourth down. Oh my God, the analytics, the analytics told him. Yeah, you know who doesn't use analytics? Jimbo Fisher. You know what he did? He punted the ball when he wasn't in position to get a first down. And you know what they did? They won the game. Lane Kiffin coached. Ole Miss out of that game and while Alabama won 42 to 21 three of their drives started in their own territory because Lane Kiffin was too stubborn to punt so did they really dominate that game or did Lane Kiffin spot them 21 points and now we have the a and game with it and so when you look at Alabama again I'm not saying they can't make the playoff I'm not saying they can't make a run here because the rest of this division is really kind of dicey right now Mississippi State, I like them. I don't love them. Uh, I don't think their offense is as good as we expected. They also, Alabama, have Tennessee. Josh Heupel is making things really interesting, but do we really expect Josh Heupel to pull the upset in Bryant-Denny in week one? And then there's LSU. And I'm just going to tell you, LSU, I don't even know if Coach O is going to be their coach by the time that LSU plays, Arkansas, or plays Alabama. Arkansas is tough. Auburn's tough. Who knows? So I'm not saying that there can't be the possibility of more losses on the schedule going forward. At the same time though, I do have to I do think we have to accept this is not a quintessential Alabama team. This is not a dominant Alabama team. We are six weeks into the season. Their best half was the first half of football when they had nine months to prepare for Miami. They have been very shaky in SEC games, two and one right now, but could be one and two. Was not as dominant against Ole Miss as we realize. And I think there is one specific reason why Alabama is struggling, and it's something that nobody's talking about. And so I don't believe this is an Alabama team that can flip a switch. I do not believe this is an Alabama team that is going to suddenly rip off 30-point wins against everybody when they really haven't done it against anybody. And so the question becomes, how did we get here? Why did we get here? Is there, quote-unquote, something wrong with Alabama? Is there something fixable with Alabama? Or is this just who they are? And I kind of believe, I'm just gonna tell you, this is just who they are. And you might be saying, Torres, I've, uh, I've heard this narrative before. Everybody, you know, and, and I will say, in your defense, you're right. There have been articles written many times about the Alabama dynasty is dead. It's over. This is not the year. It's never gonna happen again. And I'm not saying that is going to happen. What I am saying is I do not believe that this is a quintessential Alabama team and it is for one specific reason. I believe this is finally the year This is finally the year that the attrition of all the talent that has come through the program has caught up with it, and this is finally the year that they were not able to just get more guys off the assembly line to fill the spots. And again, I know what some of you are thinking. Torres, Alabama's lost before. They always bounce back. They're always fine. I think they will be fine in this case as well. I'm not predicting them to finish seven and five. But what I also think is that I think we underestimate two things. We just assume because it's Alabama, they're going to reload. Alabama doesn't rebuild, they reload. And I think that's true. I think that's true. I also think we're in the middle of Alabama losing more talent in the last two years than at any point in the history of the Nick Saban era. This is what I want to do. I want to go back through the last two drafts and tell you everybody that Alabama has lost in the last two years. Keep in mind, two years ago, by the way, they played LSU. Uh, LSU wins the national championship that year with Joe Burrow. Alabama, as it turns out, might have been the second best team in the country la- the last two years. But, but let's look at who Alabama has lost the last two years and why I think the attrition, the, the, the guys lost, are finally catching up to them. This is who they've lost in the last two years. They've lost two first-round NFL quarterbacks. They lose Tua. They lose Mac Jones. And I know Mac Jones didn't come in last year with much hype. But it was his fourth year in the program, he had played behind Tua, he had played behind Jalen Hurts, that was a guy that stepped in ready to play last year. Now, we have a redshirt freshman, zero career game experience coming into the season, not blaming Bryce Young, I actually think he's been awesome. On top of losing two NFL quarterbacks in the last two years, here's who else they lost. They lost Najee Harris, running back, who oh by the way, won the Doak Walker Award last year as the best running back in college football. Not sure if you heard. That's pretty good. First round pick of the Pittsburgh Steelers and in each of his last two seasons he rushed for at least 1200 yards with 39 total rushing touchdowns. That's a really good running back to lose. Oh, the best running back in college football. On top of that, they have lost four four first round wide receivers. DeVonte Smith who's balling out with the Philadelphia Eagles. Jalen Waddle, who, when he's healthy, is a difference maker. Uh, Jerry Judy, who's playing well with the Broncos, and Henry Ruggs, who's been awesome with the Las Vegas Raiders. So two first-round quarterbacks, uh, d- the best running back in college football, four first-round wide receivers, and an offensive tackle that was taken in the first round each of the last two years. Alex Leatherwood last year to the Raiders, and Jedrick Wills the year before to the Cleveland Browns. And so think about that. The last two NFL drafts, they lost two quarterbacks, a running back, Four wide receivers, two offensive tackles, all on the offensive side of the ball, plus Patrick Sertain, maybe the best cornerback to come out of college football in years. And one more thing, they lost their entire offensive staff after this past season. And so when I look at Alabama right now, this is what I think it is. I think all of that talent is finally starting to catch up with them. Last year, yes, they lost Jerry Judy. They lost Henry Ruggs. They lost Tua. But they had guys that had been there before, that had played big roles, that were ready to step in and be the next guy. Mac Jones was ready to play when Tua's time was up. As a matter of fact, you had guys saying that Mac threw the better ball between the two of them, between Tua and Mac Jones. You had two All-American wide receivers ready to step up when Ruggs and Jerry Judy left. You had an All-American offensive tackle ready to step in when Jedrick Wills got drafted in the first round. This year, it's not to say that the guys won't get there, but they're just not there yet. And then on top of that, you lose half of your coaching staff and you have a bunch of injuries. And I know everybody has a bunch of injuries, but they've lost two starting linebackers so far this season. Uh, Other guys are banged up, and I just think it's all starting to catch up with them. And so when I look at Alabama... I think they're really good. They're probably if Vegas is doing, uh, you know, point spreads for everybody in college football right now, they're number two behind Georgia. The only team that they'd be an underdog to is Georgia. But at the same time, like I think we have to to accept that this is just not going to be a year where Alabama absolutely steamrolls everybody they play in college football this season. It's just not going to happen. I think they're going to win a bunch of games. They'll probably be. 11-1 11-1 going into the SEC Championship game. At worst, 10-2. But I think those 42-6 to wins the last couple years are now probably going to be like, you know, if they win, it's going to be in that 31-29 to range like they had against Florida. I do not believe Alabama is a great team, and I just think that is a reality that we have to accept this season. Now, speaking of Alabama not being a great team, you know, it brings me to what I want to talk about next, Because I think we are trending for one of those weird years in college football where there just might not be any great teams. It's really funny. This week, obviously, with LSU going to Kentucky, we talked a lot about that 2007 LSU team with my buddy Jacob Hester that lost two games and still won the national championship in the BCS era. 2007 is considered by most to be the craziest season in the history of college football where, again, we had a two-loss national champion in the BCS championship game. And so the question becomes, one, are there any great teams? And really, the only team that's really left is Georgia. And you know I love Georgia, right? My dogs. But even as much as I love Georgia, like I think their defense is incredible. I think their run game is incredible. But they still haven't proven that they are a complete football team. They haven't proven that if you can stop the run, that they can beat you through the air. They they can't even keep their quarterback healthy. And so maybe Georgia is great. Maybe Georgia is a cut above everybody else, or maybe Georgia just hasn't run into their Texas A&M yet, their Oregon to Ohio State, their uh, Stanford to Oregon, whatever. Maybe this is just a year where there are no great teams, and maybe it's only one great team. But the question becomes, how? How did we get to this point that in the same year, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we are in a situation where Alabama doesn't appear to be its normal self? Ohio State does not appear to be its normal self, although they're trending in the right direction. Clemson, not its normal self. Notre Dame, not its normal self. Oklahoma, we don't know what the heck they are. We're going to talk about them in a minute. So the question becomes, how did it happen? How did we get to this point that there are potentially no great teams in college football this year? And I spent a lot of time thinking about it. I've come up with four reasons. Now, the one thing you know about me, don't always get this stuff right. Not a 1,000% accurate. Nobody bats a 1,000 on these picks. But I've come up with four reasons that I think there are no great teams in college football this year. And at the very least, hopefully the next five, six, seven minutes makes you think a little bit because I do think I'm going to tell you some things that maybe you haven't thought about before. So one, why are there no great teams in college football? I think part of it is there's no great quarterbacks. And what's really interesting is a few things. First of all, this is reflected in the Heisman Trophy odds. You look at the Heisman Trophy odds, every week there's a new favorite. One week, it's Spencer Rattler. Now we don't even know if he's going to be a starter. Then it's Matt Corral. Then it's Bryce Young. We got excited about Bijan Robinson for a second, who I know isn't a quarterback. But the point is, there are none of those truly transcendent quarterbacks in college football this year. There is no Joe Burrow. There is no Cam Newton. There is no Deshaun Watson. There is no Lamar Jackson. And so when I look at college football, I think this season is proving to me something that I have said, and I believe for the past two or three years, I've talked about it on this show, and I believe it's coming to fruition. We always talk about the NFL being a quarterback-driven league, right? We do, right? You guys all watch the NFL. You all know what I'm talking about. We all kind of agree, if you don't have Aaron Rodgers, if you don't have Tom Brady, if you don't have Patrick Mahomes, if you don't have one of those elite guys, you're not winning a Super Bowl. You might make make the playoffs, might make an AFC-NFC championship game, might even make a Super Bowl. But you're not winning the whole darn thing with Jimmy Garoppolo. You're not winning the whole darn thing with Daniel Jones, whoever. And so why do I bring it up? It is because I believe increasingly college football has become a quarterback-driven sport. And the more I'm thinking about it, have we had that many great teams in college football over the last three, four, five, six years? Or have we just had transcendent quarterbacks who cover up a lot of the mistakes of their guy of their teams, and now we don't have those guys this year? Because when I think about college football over the last couple years, think about how blessed we are to have had the quarterbacks that we've had in college football the last three, four, five years. Just think about the playoff, okay? Last year, who's in the playoff? Trevor Lawrence and Clemson. Justin Fields, Ohio State. Mac Jones, Alabama. 3 of the 4 quarterbacks won in the first 15 picks of the NFL draft. Year before, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, Jalen Hurts at Ohio uh, at Oklahoma, and some guy named Joe Burrow. That is two number 1 overall picks and two guys that started on in the NFL on Sunday, Jalen Hurts, Justin Fields. The year before that, this is who we had. Trevor Lawrence against Notre Dame. Notre Dame had Ian Book who doesn't really count. Sorry Ian Book, no disrespect. Uh, And then, oh, by the way, we had Tua versus Kyler Murray in the other college football playoff semifinal. And so just think about all that quarterback talent that has come through college football the last few years. Trevor Lawrence, Joe Burrow, Justin Fields, uh, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, Tua, Mac Jones, on and on and on. We had all these great quarterbacks. And so what I have started to wonder, were all those teams really great? Or did their quarterbacks just cover up a lot of their mistakes? Because I think you can even go back to last year. Clemson wasn't that good last year. Clemson just had Trevor Lawrence make up for a lot of what was wrong with them. Ohio State, Ohio State could have lost two or three games. But Justin Fields covered up a lot of it. Well, this year, we don't have those guys. This year, we don't have guys that just put the team on their back and refuse to let them lose because they're simply better than everybody else. I noticed this for the first time when Oregon was playing Arizona on a Saturday night while I was doing Fox Sports Radio. Oregon's coming off that incredible win over Ohio State, and they're playing Arizona, who's not a good team, and I'm sitting there watching the game, and I'm like, why is, Arizona, why is Oregon not pulling away from this team? And I realized, because with no disrespect intended, towards their quarterback Anthony Brown he's just not one of those guys and it struck me I said you know what Oregon's a really 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 talented team they have playoff caliber talent NFL caliber talent at every other position on the field they don't have that dude at quarterback but it's not just Oregon it's Clemson with DJ DJ could get there one day but he ain't there yet CJ Stroud may get there one day but he ain't there yet at Ohio State uh Michigan doesn't have the guy, Penn State doesn't have the guy, Iowa doesn't have the guy, and so you start to look across college football, we don't have those quarterbacks. And so I think because we don't have the quarterbacks, the teams do not look as dominant as they usually do. I think that's the first reason why there are no great teams in college football this year. The second thing, again, go back to the NFL. What has been the biggest complaint as to the quality of play in the NFL, especially early? There's been a lot of safety changes in the last few years. In the NFL, there's been less hitting in fall camp. There's been less padded practices. And it has led to a a sport that feels more, especially early in the season, like seven-on-seven, more than it does real football the way we grew up with. Well, what happened in college football this offseason? They changed how teams practice in the fall. Fewer padded practices, less time doing the stuff that coaches are used to doing. I'll tell you a quick story. Can't name names, but I have a friend who is very close with Nick Saban. I was talking to him off the record in, I don't know, July or August, I guess it must have been August because fall camp had started, and he said Saban was apoplectic. He's like, Saban is losing his mind because he can't put his guys in pads and he cannot do what he normally does this time of year to get his teams ready. Well, what happens? What did I just tell you? Alabama fans think their team is soft, Alabama fans think their team is not physically ready to compete with the teams that they are facing and what you see is some of those older teams some of those more experienced teams Georgia a that have those guys on defense with that veteran mindset they're the ones that are playing well on defense right now Arkansas I know that it's bad day to talk about the Arkansas defense but overall their defense has been really good a lot of veterans on that team I think safety issue. I think the, the the practice changes because of safety issues have led to less crisp play from the Alabamas, from the Ohio States, from the Clemsons, from the younger teams in college football. Speaking of younger teams, here's the third thing nobody talks about: the extra COVID year really helped some of those lower and middle tier teams, and it really hurt the Alabama, Ohio State, Clemsons. What does that mean? So obviously, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you love college sports. Uh, Last year, the NCAA gave every player in college sports an extra year because of COVID. They didn't want kids to feel pressure to play last year. So they just said, whether you want to play, whether you want to opt out, no matter what you do, this year doesn't count. We're going to give you an extra year. Well, at Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, that year didn't really matter. Because all their best players are really good and going to the NFL. And so their players aren't going to take advantage of that year. They don't need the extra year to go get paid and make millions in the NFL. But you know who did get an advantage to that to, with the COVID waiver? Like a team like Arkansas. Arkansas has something crazy like 12, what we call super seniors. In other words, guys that were supposed to graduate last year, but got the extra year because of COVID, and decided to come back and play another year. If you looked across college football in the fall, it was staggering the number of teams that had 18, 19, 20, 21 starters coming back. Coastal Carolina, really successful. They had a lot of guys coming back, I know off the top of my head. Liberty, another team, Hugh Freeze, really successful, had a lot of guys coming back. Um, You know, you go on and on, There was uh, UCLA is a perfect example. They look so much better because they have so many guys coming back. And so those top tier teams were really hurt by that rule, or let me put it to you this way. I don't know that they were hurt by that rule as much as it didn't really help them where it helped the lower tier teams. Now all of a sudden, that gap between Alabama as the best team in the SEC West and the fourth, fifth, sixth team in the SEC West, it's not as big. Speaking of which, that brings me to the fourth reason why there may be no great teams in college football this year. I do think the portal kind of hurt some depth in some places. And it's really interesting because everybody's kind of taking a little bit of a different approach to the portal. Um, and Nick Saban, Alabama, said it specifically. Nick Saban's like, look, we're going to adapt to this like anybody else, and we think it's going to help us. Those guys that aren't good enough to play – they're going to leave, but then we're going to replace them with guys that we know can play. And so they went out. They got Jamison Williams, a wide receiver from Ohio State. They got Henry Toto a linebacker from Tennessee. They filled their two biggest needs in the middle of the with the portal. But other schools either haven't been as aggressive, or simply have just lost more guys than they've gained. And I think that's hurt a lot of them. I find it really interesting because when when I watch college football every Saturday, it seems like somebody who started at Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, is having significant contributions. Just from Clemson, they lost the guy that is now Wisconsin's leading rusher. They're leading a uh, 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 guy uh, running back, the kid Belusi, or Belusi, or however you say his name. I know Wisconsin isn't good, but don't blame this kid. Well, you know where he started? His name is Chez Malusi. He started at Clemson. Couldn't get on the field at Clemson. Now he's at Wisconsin. Second running back from Clemson. Now... At Florida, Demarcus Bowman. Oh, by the way, one of Georgia's starting corners, Darian Kendrick from Clemson. Ed Pickney, a starting defensive lineman at Minnesota from Clemson. Mike Jones, starting linebacker, LSU from Clemson. So that's, I just listed six guys from Clemson that in some way, shape, or form would have contributed to them that are now contributing at other schools. You can use examples from Ohio State. You can use examples from Bama. You can use examples from Georgia. But I bring it up to say, I think all of these factors have led to where we are right now. I don't believe that this is a season where we have any great teams. Maybe Georgia is there, but even Georgia we still have not seen. Now, some of it I think will correct itself over time. I think the great quarterbacks are in college football. They just haven't figured it all out yet. Bryce Young is going to put together a Heisman Trophy type season. If he is this good right now, imagine what he will be like a year from now, especially since most of the guys that he's playing with are going to come back. Um, You know, DJ I think will get there. CJ Stroud may be an absolute stud. Um, you know, we'll see about some of the other quarterbacks. Caleb Williams maybe eventually gets there. Spencer Rattler, whether it's at Oklahoma or somewhere else, maybe he goes somewhere and has immediate success. So the point I'm trying to make, I think the quarterback stuff figures itself out. The COVID waiver will eventually cycle its stuff out. The transfer portal, everybody will figure out how to use it to their advantage and negate the negatives to it. But I just bring it up to say, those are the reasons that I believe that college football right now, there are no great teams. Lack of QBs the safety rules, the one-time transfer waiver, and the transfer portal. I thought that was an interesting segment, didn't you? I thought it was. With that said, let's take a break because we got a lot more to talk about. I haven't even talked about one of the best games of my lifetime, Oklahoma-Texas. Just an all-time instant classic. We'll talk about that. We will talk about the madness in the Big Ten. Iowa takes care of Penn State. And now I think we just have a really interesting question of who is actually the best team in the Big Ten. Iowa has the path to the playoff, but I think you could argue, is Iowa the best team? Is it Ohio State? I actually like Michigan more than some people, so that's what what I want to do. Take a quick break, come back, we will talk all sorts of good stuff. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back, and let me just tell you this. As we transition out of what we just talked about to Texas, Oklahoma, You know it was a crazy day in college football when we had one of the single most insane Red River rivalry games in the history of one of the greatest rivalries in college football, and we were at the 30-minute mark of the show before we barely touched on it, but let's get to it because this was not only an all-time game, but this was a game that literally had Every single storyline in college football you can possibly have jam-packed into one afternoon at the Cotton Bowl, Dallas, Texas, at the Texas State Fair. I mean, you had a rivalry game, full house, half capacity you know on a neutral field so you have 50% here 50% there you have uh, the underdog taking a big lead you have the other team coming back you have a quarterback change mid-game that may have shaken up an entire season you have miscues you have great plays you have all-time throws and oh by the way you have Kennedy Brooks sealing the win and sealing the cover for those of us who had Oklahoma minus three and a half just a bananas 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 game and I'll tell you this really quick is that you know listen I think any of you who listen to the Aaron Torres podcast know I clearly love what I do like like you know I, one thing you can you can hate me you can love me you can hate my opinions you can disagree there is no doubt that I enjoy what I'm doing but with that said as much sports as I watch it isn't often you know I watch thousands of games a year and I'm by no means complaining I'm lucky to do what I do but it is not often that I turn off a game and say oh my God, I am speechless. That is one of the greatest games I have ever seen. And that is exactly what we got again at, in Dallas, Red River Shootout on Saturday. So let's get into it. And you know, really what was so unbelievable about this game was of course the emotional swings within it. And it started early. It started with Texas and credit Steve Sarkeesian. He had his team ready to play, focused, locked in. And when I was watching that game early, it looked to me as though Texas realized they were playing the biggest game of their season against their biggest rival, and they had a chip on their shoulder, and Oklahoma came out and looked like they were playing Tulane in week one or Western Carolina in week two. Texas opens up, 14-point lead right away. Xavier Worthy catches the ball, boom, down the sideline, score. Next possession, Oklahoma, three and out. Boom, blocked punt. Eventually score. Texas goes up 14 0. To its credit, Texas keeps building 28, you know, it's 28 7 after the first quarter. Uh, they're, they're again building a lead, a comfortable lead. You think they're going to blow out Oklahoma. We have so many questions about Oklahoma. And then you know what happens next. Uh, Oklahoma puts in Caleb Williams. They take out Spencer Rattler. Uh, Ultimately, I don't know that it was that surprising. For people who have forgotten, Spencer Rattler actually got benched last year in the Red River rivalry game and then came back in, led Oklahoma to victory, and Oklahoma did not lose the rest of the season. That did not happen this year as Caleb Williams come in and he clearly starts balling starts making plays. He has the big run. And the one thing that kind of stood out to me, and I was obviously flipping back and forth with Ole Miss, Arkansas, is as you're watching that game, you're just starting to slowly realize that Oklahoma is just chipping away at that lead little by little by little by little. Now, the the play that tied the game is the one that we'll all remember, Caleb Williams throwing off his back foot to Marvin Mims. But what we have to remember is that there was a lot that led up to the play. Again, Texas was up 21 points after the first quarter. They were up 18 at the half, and they were up 18 late in the third quarter after a field goal. But if you started, if you were watching the game, you just started to see Oklahoma getting comfortable, Texas getting on its heels, Oklahoma settling in on defense, and you just start to see the lead starting to slip away like sand through an hourglass. Oklahoma gets a touchdown. Oklahoma scores a field goal. Oklahoma gets a stop on defense. Oklahoma holds Texas to a field goal. And all of a sudden you look up, it's 41-33. And Caleb Williams again throws one of the iconic passes in the history of this rivalry. 53 yards off one foot, two Marvin Mims touchdown. All of a sudden it's 41-41. And that's where the craziness just started. From there, we know what happened. It's a tie game. Xavier Worthy, the guy who scored on that opening play, tries to run the ball out. He fumbles. Oklahoma scores. They take the lead. Texas gets the ball back. Sark goes to Xavier Worthy. He scores a touchdown. It's forty-one. It's 48-48. And then we have the Kennedy Brooks run to seal the win. And again, it is not often that we come out of a game saying that was an all-timer but it was an all-timer. I mean, it was the highest-scoring Red River rivalry game ever, okay? It topped last year. Last year, by the way, went to four overtimes to get anywhere close to this, but it broke the 100-point barrier for the first time, final score 55-48, and it tied the biggest comeback in the history of the rivalry at 21. 21. It's also, I would say, uh, just about the most devastating loss I can ever remember for Texas. It feels like every single year they find new and incredible ways to lose this game. This one feels different, though, just from the perspective that they were there. You were already kind of in your head having the conversation of, are they the best team in the Big 12? Are they ahead of schedule under Sark? Is this finally the program that we think they could be? They find a way to lose. They have to rally from here, and we will see what happens with Texas. They actually have a pretty tough one this weekend hosting Oklahoma State, so it does not get any easier in a noon kickoff, and we're going to find out how quickly they recover from this one. But listen, the story coming out, I know I say it all the time, sometimes the more interesting story is in the losing locker room. This time, the the more interesting story is in the winning locker room with Oklahoma for two reasons. The first reason, Lincoln Riley's got himself a little bit of a quarterback controversy. Uh, Spencer Rattler bench, Caleb Williams going forward. And, you know, let's get into that part of it because, look, you know, first of all, Lincoln Riley, to his credit, he said all the right things. Um, you know, hysteria of the game, a lot of excitement. But he said, like, look, no final decision has been made. We're going to evaluate the film. We're going to try to figure out what's best for this program going forward. And I know it sounds like coach speak, but I kind of believe him. I think, one, Um, You know, first of all, uh, I should mention, by the way, Chris Plank, friend of mine, he's been on this podcast before Uh, he joined our radio show, Fox Sports Radio, on Saturday night. And he said, like, look, I kind of believe Lincoln Riley that no final decision has been made. And it kind of makes sense. You know, Caleb Williams is a young guy. He is obviously a true freshman. Um, He got thrown into the fire and delivered. But it's worth noting, like like he is still a true freshman. Um, he did not play high school football last year. His high school season was canceled because of COVID. And just because he had one good game does not mean that he is ready to permanently take over the reins in perpetuity for this program. It's also worth noting, you know, Oklahoma has kind of a manageable schedule going forward where if he does want to get both quarterbacks reps, uh, he can do so. They play TCU this weekend. They play at Kansas. They play Texas Tech. Those last two teams are probably the two worst teams in the Big 12. And so if Lincoln Riley wants to try to keep both of these guys happy, at least for the remainder of the season, you know, there is a scenario where he could do that. And the other reason he's just not saying it publicly, we all know why. Because Spencer Rattler's going to sprint to that transfer portal, and that's not a criticism of him, that's not a criticism of him as a person, that's just a reality of what college football is right now. And so I think Lincoln Riley wants to keep this going as long as he can before he has to make a decision, but I would also say this, I think when push comes to shove, I don't know how hard of a decision it is. Listen, again, I've said it a million times, I hope you guys know, I don't root against anybody, I don't root against any player, I don't root against any coach, but Spencer Rattler has been a starter for a year and a half now. Like, if it hasn't popped, if it hasn't clicked, I don't know when it is supposed to or when it will, and that's not to say, again, that he can't have success, but at the same time, it's also to say that he is probably not the guy that he was, that we were led to believe a future potential number one overall pick, the next in line of great quarterbacks behind Lincoln Riley. If he was going to be that guy, it would have happened right now. It clicked with Baker Mayfield right away. It clicked with Kyler Murray right away. It clicked with Jalen Hurts right away. And Spencer Rattler just isn't that guy. On top of that, what I would also say, speaking of clicking, you know who clicked on Saturday? Caleb Williams. He was awesome. And when I watched Caleb Williams, a couple things stood out to me. One, he's like Spencer Rattler, but just better at every, he's bigger, he's got a bigger arm, he's more athletic, he runs faster. Everything that you want from a quarterback, he has better than Spencer Rattler. And so I don't know it, you know, what it's been like behind the scenes in practice. Obviously, Lincoln Riley wants to give the benefit of the doubt to the older guy, but I don't think there's any doubt that Caleb Williams is the more physically gifted quarterback. And I would say on top of that, How did the offense look when Caleb Williams came into that game? Uh, It looked like a completely different team to me. And so when I look at this, you know, Lincoln Riley could drag it out. He can do the right thing. He could try to be nice to the veteran. I give him credit for that. I'm not disrespecting him or discrediting him for it. But at the end of the day, you know, the goal at Oklahoma is not to beat Texas. It's It's a goal, but it's not the goal. The goal is to beat Texas, win the Big 12, and this year it's to compete for a national championship. And you believe, Oklahoma believed coming in, they had the run game to do it, the wide receiver to do it, the offensive uh, the offensive line to do it, the defense to do it. And right now, Caleb Williams at quarterback appears to be the better answer because they looked so much better when he came into that game. And I believe he gives them a ceiling that I don't know that Spencer Rattler does. So we'll see what the future holds at quarterback. I would project that Caleb Williams by November is the full-time starter. I don't know what it means for Spencer Rattler. But I don't think there's any doubt that he gives them the better chance to win. And I think it says something, by the way, that Spencer Rattler last year got pulled in this game and went back in. This year, clearly Caleb Williams was the hot hand ready to play. Finally, what I would just say about this game really quick, I think it does change my opinion about Oklahoma long-term college football playoff trajectory. If you've listened to this show, you know I've been critical. I've said I just don't see it. Spencer Rattler ain't the guy. The run game isn't there. The defense has been hot and cold. I don't see a team that is going to go 12-1 and make the college football playoff. But one, they may have just gotten through their toughest game of the season, but then two, on top of that, they might have the quarterback now that unlocks everybody else. The defense, I know they struggled, especially early yesterday, but the defense has been pretty good for most of the season in the lead up to the last few games. And so now, all of a sudden, maybe the defense takes a little bit of a step back, but if the offense takes a step up under Caleb Williams, I think this team is starting to look like the team that I thought they were going to be in the preseason. On top of that, they just got through the toughest game, as I said. The rest of the Big 12 is kind of, you know what, which is why Texas and Oklahoma are leaving the Big 12 in the first place. Uh, You know, Oklahoma, you look at the rest of their schedule, as I said, TCU at home, Kansas, Texas Tech, they should be fine. Now, the final three are pretty tough at Baylor, Iowa State, Oklahoma State. Um, but look, Iowa State, we know who they are. Iowa State's not legit. Baylor on the road, maybe that's tough. Oklahoma State, we'll see. But Oklahoma has owned that rivalry. And I start to look at this team. They're now 6-0. and They are in a completely different position than Ohio State that already has a loss. They are in a completely different position than Penn State that has a loss, than Oregon that has a loss. They are a team, the Alabama, by the way, that has a loss. They are a team that right now, this second... I look at them and I say, it's really hard to find two losses on the schedule. Now, could they have a bad day? True freshman, Caleb Williams, quarterback, maybe he's on the road against Baylor, maybe he's on the road against Oklahoma State. Could I see that scenario? I could. But with the way this team played when he was in the game, can I see them losing two games going forward? I really can't. And all of a sudden, to me, the playoff picture has completely changed, and I do think that Oklahoma is a legitimate playoff threat in a way that I did not at this time last week. All right, this is what I want to do. Take a quick break, come back, wrap the show. We'll talk about that Iowa-Penn State game, but really the bigger picture of the Big Ten uh, because it's fascinating. So we'll talk about it. We'll be right back. All right, everybody. For the final time today, I am back. Gonna be back, gonna be back. Thank you guys for sticking with the Aaron Torres podcast. And what I would say is, For the final time today as well, I get to tell you how crazy college football was on Saturday because how about the fact that we are, what, 40-plus minutes into this podcast and we are just now getting to, oh, I don't know, a top five matchup between two awesome teams, Penn State and Ohio State. And I think the Penn State and Iowa, excuse me, and the reason I haven't really talked about it is because when it comes to this game, one, I haven't talked about it because Alabama A&M, Oklahoma, Texas were awesome. But on top of that, the reason I haven't really talked about it is because I don't know that there's some grand, amazing, unbelievable takeaway to have other than the obvious. And I've said it many times on this show. But, you know, when I come on this microphone, I like to at least try to present something different, something interesting. Obviously, it would be something that I believe. And in this game, there just isn't anything outside of the obvious to say other than exactly what we saw in that game. I think two things specifically stand out when it comes to this game. The first thing, Penn State's quarterback got hurt early to middle of the second quarter, and it was a completely different game after. And if he does not get hurt, Penn State probably wins. Penn State was up 17-3. Penn State has obviously been awesome this year with Sean Clifford in the lineup. He is having a resurgence under his third offensive coordinator in three years, And this is no disrespect to Iowa. I think, listen, I talked to an Iowa fan at Fox Sports Radio on Saturday night. Even Iowa fans know if Sean Clifford doesn't get hurt, they probably win this game. At the same time, what I would also say is another thing can also be true. Once he did get hurt, I do believe that Penn State played not to lose rather than to win, and that factored into the fact that Iowa uh, ended up with the victory. And part of it is, I understand it, I've said it for the last two or three weeks. Iowa does one thing better than I believe anybody does anything in college football, and that is that they force turnovers. An insane amount, seven last week against Maryland, four against Penn State. And so I get with a backup quarterback in the game, you do not want to be too aggressive. But what ultimately ended up happening was you just allowed... Iowa to hang around, hang around, hang around it kind of in a weird way, even though they were two completely different types of games, reminded me a lot of Oklahoma, Texas. Oklahoma kept doing just enough to put points on the board, just enough to let to not let Texas get out of their sights. And then all of a sudden, boom, you look up and it's a tie game. Iowa-Penn State, it was kind of the same deal where Iowa keeps making plays, keeps making plays. Penn State isn't even trying to move the ball downfield. They're just trying to run out the clock, hoping they can survive uh, with a win. And all of a sudden, there's eight minutes left. Iowa kicks another field goal, makes it 20-16. to And you you realize they're one stop and score away from taking the lead in this game and winning a game that they maybe, frankly, have no business winning. And so that's exactly what happened. Iowa holds on for a victory in what is another low-scoring, competitive, defensive game that Iowa finds a way to win. By the way, I get so much pushback from the SEC, Alabama, Georgia folks. Listen, I'm not saying Iowa is Georgia. I'm not saying they're Alabama. You got to respect the way that they play, though. They play a certain brand of football. They force you into so many mistakes. They capitalize and they win games. And so I do believe, even though I don't believe they're the second most talented team in the country, I don't think they're even the second most talented team in the Big Ten, but they find ways to win games and they are worthy of that number two ranking in the poll. And I'll tell you, as I look to the big picture of this season in college football, couple things stand out, and the first one is, not only does Iowa uh, have the number two spot in the AP poll, that is right. So for people who have not seen the new AP poll, one, it's available at AaronTorresOnline.com, but two, on top of that, Iowa is number two in the AP poll right now, and I'll say this, outside of Georgia, and maybe even more than Georgia, because Georgia starts to play Kentucky this weekend and Florida after they're in two weeks. Georgia is not out of the woods yet in terms of getting to the... Conference championship weekend undefeated. You can make the argument that Iowa has the easiest path to at least get to conference championship weekend unmarked without a loss more than anybody in college football right now. This is their schedule for the rest of the year. Iowa is already through the tough part of their schedule. They got a lot of breaks because they do not play Michigan. They do not play Ohio State. They do not play Penn State this year. Here is the remainder of Iowa's schedule. Purdue at home this weekend. Then they get a bye. Then at Wisconsin, at Northwestern, Minnesota, at Nebraska, or Illinois, at Nebraska to end the year. Now Nebraska's playing better. We're going to talk about them in a minute. Um, Wisconsin plays real defense. It is hard to see the scenario where Iowa loses any of those games, and so if they go to the conference championship game undefeated, they're going to be in a great position to make the college football playoff, and maybe in the driver's seat to potentially, by that point, get the number one seed, depending on what happens with Georgia and Alabama. Uh, I would take it a step further. I think there's this scenario where, depending on what happens in the Pac-12, depending on what happens in the ACC, depending on what happens in the Big 12... I mean, there's no, the, the possibility isn't out there, it, it, the possibility isn't impossible, if that's a bad way to say it, that Iowa could get into the playoff without even having to win the Big Ten championship game. I mean, if everybody in the Big Ten, or everyone in the Big 12 has a bunch of losses, everyone in the ACC probably will by then, everybody in the Pac-12 has at least two losses. If Iowa goes to the Big Ten Championship game, kind of like Notre Dame last year, right? Iowa goes to the Big Ten Championship game, as long as they don't get destroyed by Ohio State, destroyed by Penn State, I think there's a really good chance that they could even make the playoff potentially without winning the Big Ten Championship game, so that is the big picture takeaway for Iowa. You get the win, you look at their schedule, they are in the driver's seat to make the college football playoff. Iowa fans, I'm not saying book your tickets to Miami or Dallas just yet, where the two playoff games are, but you gotta feel really good about today. And then Penn State, I think you gotta feel the opposite. I mean, one, you have to feel sick to your stomach about how this game went down, about, again, The fact that you were in complete control and your starting quarterback goes down. As I record here on Sunday night, I have not seen an update on Sean Clifford, and you certainly hope that he is okay going forward. The only saving grace for Penn State right now is that they actually have a bye coming up, so you hope that they have the bye followed by Illinois before the schedule picks up again, that he can get healthy, maybe potentially have two full weeks off before that schedule does get tough but that is the bad part if you're Penn State. You needed to win this game only because the schedule does not get any easier from here. I thought it was really interesting. James Franklin kind of hinted at making the argument that we shouldn't have divisions in college football, and I think he might be on to something. I mean, it's pretty clear that not only are three of the four best teams in the Big Ten in the Big Ten East this year, But that you could argue like three of the top six or seven teams in college football with Ohio State, Michigan, maybe Michigan State, are in the Big Ten East this year. And so you look at the rest of Penn State's schedule. Once you get the bye, once you get Illinois, it is brutal. At Ohio State on Halloween weekend, Michigan, and then you close the final weekend, Thanksgiving weekend, at Michigan State. So right now on the schedule, you've gotten through. A game at Wisconsin you've gotten through Auburn and you've gotten through a game at Iowa you still have at Ohio State Michigan at home at Michigan State to close the season that is just brutal going forward and I think it's going to be really tough and then oh by the way even if you survive that Penn State you probably have to beat Iowa in the Big Ten Championship game to make the college football playoffs so I just feel bad for Penn State because that game goes completely differently if Sean Clifford stays healthy if he stays in the game now the entire season is up in the air really quick I would say, I think the single most interesting thing that came out of this weekend in the Big Ten is not necessarily Iowa now maybe potentially controlling it, not potentially, they do control their own fate in the college football playoff race. Who is the best team in the Big Ten? Like, to me, I think that's a fascinating question. And again, for all the talk that we make about the SEC this, the SEC that, I think there's five five of the top 10 teams right now are in the Big Ten and four of the top 10 are are in the Big Ten East. And so I look at the Big Ten right now. I'm just trying to figure out, like, like who is like, who is the best team in, in the Big Ten right now? Just think about it. Iowa just took care of business. They're 6-0. and They force a million turnovers. They have a certain style that they play, but darn it, do they play it well. And now they have that signature win over Penn State. I think you can make the case that Penn State may still be the best team in this conference if Sean Clifford is healthy. They were in complete control of that game at Iowa, probably get the win, and are number two in the country right now if Sean Clifford stays healthy, and if he comes back, there's no reason to think that you can't potentially beat Ohio State, that you can't potentially beat Michigan, that you can't potentially beat Michigan State. I'll take it a step further, and I'm not the only person to say this. Ohio State's all of a sudden looking really good, and I was that guy, I was saying, I don't know, are we really sold on a win against Akron? Are we really sold on a win against Rutgers? Well, they've now strung together three straight really impressive wins. And what stands out is the defense continues to get better. They've given up 27 points in the last three games. Um, And on top of that, the offense is firing on all cylinders. 59 points against Akron, 52 against Rutgers, 66 against Maryland. And oh, by the way, C.J. Stroud, who we just all kind of wrote off after that Oregon game. How about this for his last two games? Uh, 10 touchdowns, zero interceptions to open the second part of Big Ten slate. I know they opened at Minnesota, so technically not his first two Big Ten games, but his most recent two Big Ten games, 10 touchdowns, zero interceptions. Really quickly, how about the Michigan schools? Listen, I think I'm the only person in America that actually respects what Jim Harbaugh and Michigan are doing. And I understand, it's Harbaugh, it's Michigan. Something bad is going to happen because that is what the Jim Harbaugh era shows us. But at the same time, Go to Wisconsin, get a big win there. Then go to Nebraska on a Saturday night, get a win. And what I see with this team is a couple things. One, it's been talked about. I'm not the only person to say this. They have a real identity. They're physical, they're tough, they run the football. I said it on Saturday. You can criticize Harbaugh for a lot of things. Last year, they didn't do anything right. They were 2-4, and and the thing that stood out when I watched them, they got abused along the line of scrimmage. I don't know what happened... I don't know if they're eating extra Wheaties. I don't know what is in the protein shakes in Ann Arbor, but I will give Michigan credit for this. In one offseason, they went from soft and couldn't block anybody to the most physical team up front in college football. Doesn't mean they're going to beat Ohio State. Doesn't mean they're going to beat Penn State. Doesn't even mean they're going to beat Michigan State. Heck, I don't. they might not even beat Maryland. I don't know. But the only point I'm trying to make, we criticize Harbaugh for everything. They're 6-0 with two really impressive wins. Their defense is filthy, and their defense causes all sorts of chaos, couple late turnovers seal the win. I think this Michigan team's for real. Now, I understand, until you beat Ohio State, nobody's going to take you seriously. And even if you beat Ohio State, you got to beat Penn State, you got to beat Iowa in a Big Ten championship game, potentially to get to the college football playoff. I am not ready yet to say that Michigan is anywhere close to that category. But at the same time, that defense is salty and that defense is for real. And I don't know why we have to dance around it and act like they're not. Finally, Michigan State got to give them credit. I don't think they're quite on that level yet. I mean, their whole season was basically built off destroying Miami, and Miami is terrible. Uh, but you look beyond that. Beyond that, you know, last second win over Nebraska, close game for a little while against Western Kentucky, close game for a little while against Rutgers. I like Michigan State. I like what Mel Tucker is building. But maybe they are the best team. I don't know. The point I'm trying to make, I think you can legitimately make the case. There are four teams that, if fully healthy, could be the best team in the Big Ten. Iowa, Penn State, Ohio State, even Michigan, maybe include Michigan State in that category. All right, I want to wrap up on a couple things. You know, a couple SEC notes. Uh, Kentucky LSU, two quick things on this. One, it's over for Coach O. I, I mean, I talked about it twice last week. I talked about, uh, you know, the, the call-in show incident that he had, and I talked about potential candidates for when he is let go. Uh, I will be perfectly blunt with you guys as an audience. I actually usually start recording this show pretty early in the day on Wednesday on, on Sunday, excuse me. And I kind of actually uh, decided to wait on Sunday to record this show because I kind of felt like Coach O was going to get fired on Sunday. Um, it did not happen, but as I said coming into this game, it's one thing to lose the games that you're losing, but LSU was physically beat up by Kentucky now part of that is credit to Mark Stoops we're going to get to Mark Stoops in a minute Um, but LSU physically got the crap kicked out of them by Kentucky and I tweeted it out I had a couple LSU buddies text me and say they liked it I said I think this is a tarmac game for Coach O in reference to the night that Lane Kiffin got fired on the tarmac as USC's head coach and I said this kind of has that feel for Coach O and so listen Scott Woodward I've said it many times He is the most aggressive aggressive AD in college football. I know he is working the phones. I don't know who is the favorite. I think Jimbo Fisher's probably off the table after beating Bama. Uh, Don't know about Lane Kiffin. Don't know about Hugh Freeze. Somebody threw out Luke Fickle, which feels a little weird to me. Could Urban Meyer, by the way, you know LSU doesn't care about anything other than getting dubs. Could Urban Meyer be on the table? I don't know. I gave you the candidates last week, but I bring it up to say... A lot of these college football podcasts I listen to, you know, they want to talk Coach O today. I told you two weeks ago. I said it's over. It's not changing. They can't run the football. They're not physical. They're getting beat up. It is one thing uh, as as uh, it is one thing as a LSU coach to lose to Alabama to lose to Florida. But when you get smoked last year by Mississippi State, when you get smoked last year, uh, smoked this year to open the season by UCLA, and you get physically dominated by Kentucky, there's nothing else to say. It's over. I wish Coach O well. Heck, I'd love for for UConn to hire him. It's never going to happen. Would love for Coach O to be hired by UConn, my alma mater. Uh, I actually saw somebody say he should replace Lee Corso on college game day, which I thought was brilliant. I think that he would be great in that role but he's not the head coach of LSU. LSU is a program that has had the last three coaches win national championships. You don't have to be elite, but you can't be getting beat by Kentucky. You can't be getting beat by Mississippi State. You can't be getting physically dominated by Kentucky in the trenches, which brings me to Kentucky. Listen, I did the big Mark Stoops rant last week. There's really nothing else to add to it. All I would really say is this. I've been watching college football a long time, as long as most of you guys. Um love everything about this sport obviously love college basketball whatever i bring it up because kentucky you know there are, every program kind of has their their role in the hierarchy of college football and every once in a while something weird can happen blah 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 this and that um you know, Oklahoma State has a good year. They're they're in the Big 12 championship conversation. Uh, back in the day, the BCS conversation, maybe the playoff conversation. Uh, you know, Cincinnati rises. Cincinnati falls, depending on the coach. Uh, Michigan State has its moments. You I mean, you pick any program, right? But throughout history, it's pretty much an Ohio State, Alabama sport, you know, and, and then you have the, the, the newer programs, the Florida State's, Miami's. But I bring all this up just to very simply say one thing, is that, Kentucky, for my entire life, they've been a 7-5 and five football program. And in theory, they could still finish 7-5 and five this year. Don't think it's going to happen. But what why I bring it up is this. Kentucky has pulled off, quote-unquote, upsets before. They pulled off an upset two weeks ago against Florida at home as an 8.5-point underdog. What happened on Saturday, though, was something that I could have never imagined. LSU, those three letters on the side of the helmet, I don't even know if they have them on the side of the helmet, LSU walking into Kroger Field in Lexington and getting physically the crap kicked out of them by Kentucky. And what stood out to me, and I tweeted this and a lot of you guys loved it, is that um, basically I never could have imagined the day where I saw Kentucky play Florida and LSU in back to back weeks and Kentucky was not only better coached, that was always in the cards, but they had the better players, they had the better athletes, they looked faster, they looked more physical, they looked more athletic, they had the quarterback making the plays. I could have never imagined that. And so what it means, Mark Stoops is going to get a big fat raise this offseason. He doesn't strike me as a guy that's a candidate for a lot of these high-profile jobs. Credit Mark Stoops. I just could have never imagined that I would see this. couple other news and notes. Just get out of here really, really, really quick because we're going long now. Um, one, Ole Miss-Arkansas was a classic. Don't know what else to say. Uh, Great game. Really fun game. Had no problem at all, by the way, with Sam Pittman choosing to go for two to end that game. The defense couldn't get stops all game long, which, by the way, there's a lot of teams that you could say that about with Ole Miss. Uh, I did see some criticism, not really from fans, but from, uh, you know, I saw some criticism from media members with the decision. One, if you weren't watching the game, it was the right decision. But two, it is funny how all this stuff works, and I've said this many times. Lane Kiffin can make any decision. He just says, oh, it was analytics. Went for it on fourth and 27 on my own eight-yard line, analytics. And everybody gives him a pass. Sam Pittman goes for two and he gets crushed again. I'm not saying Arkansas fans did that. What I am just saying, though, is uh, is credit to uh, is is, you know, I'm just so tired of this nonsense. I have no problem with Sam Pittman going for it. Last SEC note, Tennessee. I tweeted it. I got a lot of pushback. They look awesome. Okay, and I know it was South Carolina and I know last week it was Missouri. This Josh Heupel thing may work. They had 62 against Missouri last week. 45 this week, 107 total points in the last two games. You talk about a fun game this weekend. Lane Kiffin, may have heard of him. Former Tennessee head coach. He is going to Knoxville as the head of coach of Ole Miss. Really fun game. Shout out, Tennessee. I may do a separate standalone piece on Tennessee at some point this week. Check out the podcast, check out YouTube. But shout out, Tennessee. Last note, uh, I do want to give just, not credit, Credit, credit. You know, this isn't middle school. This isn't a. Uh, we don't give out um, participation trophies. Nebraska's a good football team, man, and and they're gonna break through one of these games. And I talked about it a few weeks ago. Easily could have beaten Michigan last night on Saturday night. Easily could have beaten. Um, easily could have beaten Michigan State two weeks ago. Easily could have beaten Oklahoma. At some point they're going to break through. I'm just warning you. They got Ohio State and Iowa at home. They got Wisconsin on the road. They got Minnesota on the road. They're going to beat some of these teams. I think they're playing like one of the 25 best teams in the country right now. I think they find a way to get to 6 and 6, get to a bowl game. That would involve potentially upsetting in Ohio State or in Iowa. I just think they are playing really well. They are so close to breaking through. Adrian Martinez by the way has actually been really good of late. So just keep an eye on them. Uh, with that said, I think I'm going to get out of here. That's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Podcast. I should mention, by the way, if you made it this far, those team-specific Twitter pages, I think all of you guys are really going to dig them, so make sure to follow them. We started a Tennessee page this weekend. Uh, Torres on the Vols. So Torres on the Vols, if you search Torres on the Valls, for you Tennessee fans, for p- people who aren't paying attention, I have started team-specific Twitter pages Uh, For those of you who maybe like the podcast, but you you don't want to see me tweeting about this or that or the other thing, we now have team-specific Twitter pages. So we have Torres on UK, which is Kentucky, Torres on Bama, Torres on the Hogs, which is Arkansas, and Torres on the Vols now, We'll also be starting an IU Indiana page soon. If you think you would be good at running one of these pages, let me know. I should mention all of these pages are run by fans of these teams. So, uh, you know, you get the real fan experience. Yes, part of it is sharing my work on these pages, but part of it is also just keeping you updated as fans, Thank you to the guys that are running, the ones that we have already started, Sam on Kentucky, uh, Bentley on Alabama, and, of course, uh, Teal, uh, my guy Teal on uh, Arkansas. Thank you, all of you guys, for your help. And if you think you could do it, hit me up, DM me. Let's talk privately. Let's figure this out. All right, I think it's time to get out of here. Before we do, want to remind you, make sure you're subscribed to Aaron Torres Podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Podcast Addict App, Podbean, wherever you listen. Thank you for subscribing to the Aaron Torres podcast. And if you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. I should mention, by the way, um, support of this show has been unbelievable. Unbelievable the last month or so. Uh, You know, for a guy, many of you know me for college football or college basketball, the college football shows have done monster numbers over the course of this fall. Uh, The numbers blow me away, honestly. And so thank you for your guys' continued support um, I, you know, I don't want to get into numbers, but I, I would just tell you uh, the numbers have been through the roof basically since football started, so thank you guys for your support. We will obviously be talking a ton of football. College Hoops is coming up as well, uh, but just thank you again for your support, and we will stick with college football obviously not only through the rest of the season but into the bowl season, playoff, and beyond, recruiting, all that good stuff. Before we get out of here, again, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres online, by the way, Aaron Torres online. That's where I post my college football picks. I will probably be getting to a little bit more writing there right now. We're just kind of trying to make sure to keep everything afloat. We got a bunch of podcasts helping out with all that stuff. Um, And that's really it for today's show. So Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel Hates My Voice. Shout out Jimbo Fisher. Shout out Caleb Williams. Shout out Iowa. We will be back on Wednesday. Thank you, guys. Have a great Monday, great Tuesday. We'll talk on Wednesday.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?